You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in the Sierra de la Pandera. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeba. I am the host of tonight's episode and despite what you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am not on La Pandera. I'm down in Valdepeñas de Jaén, the town at the bottom of the climb, the Anglia of the south. The scene of a brilliant stage victory by Primoz Roglic in last year's Vuelta a España. I interviewed him more or less on the spot where I am recording tonight's podcast. And joining me yet again today from Villefranche-sur-Mer, I think he's there today. He's more Motown than Monaco, more Grand Rapids than French Riviera, more Chevrolet than Saint-Tropez. <laughs> he is the current AG2R Citroën professional veteran of four Vuelters, Tour de Suisse stage winner, 2017 US National Road Race champion. He has the legs, the looks, the luscious locks, and most importantly, <laughs> the searing insight that keeps the listeners coming back. He is Larry Warbass. Lucky Larry Good to be Warbus. here, yeah. Uh, also, I'm not where you thought I was today. I'm actually in La Mora in uh, Italy right now. So, uh, Oh, even better. Yeah. What, takes, what takes you there apart from the Barolo? Yeah, well, actually, um, I have a good friend staying with me from the U.S. this week, and he's really into wine. So uh, we decided to come make a trip up here just for the night. So, so yeah, his last night wow. uh, in Europe. And tell us about La Mora. Just, just in the name of making Brian Nygaard jealous, he's already slightly jealous <laughs> that he's not on tonight's program, but he will be on tomorrow. Just tell us, um, nice. how's La Mora looking? Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, okay, a little cloudy today, but it's a beautiful place, you know, middle of all uh, the vineyards in the heart of the Lange. Uh, and yeah, pretty cool. So uh, my friend's definitely pumped to be here. So we actually left him uh, at a vineyard doing some wine tasting. So hopefully we find him uh, still on two feet and uh, yeah, alive when uh, the podcast is finished. Is this a visit, Larry, that your team manager, Vincent Lavenue, would be, well, would authorize? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm still training well and everything. I just came for the night. It's not not okay. like I came, uh, you know, uh, yeah, for some big bender a for a ten, week or something. Yeah, you ten know? day so. wine tasting junket. And um, Larry, no, it's no. also it's also very beautiful where I am. As I said, we're in the province of Jaén, and no podcast visit to Jaén would be complete without an eye-watering stat about olive oil production plucked from Google. Um, so today, I'm going to tell you, I think I told everyone, told the listeners this last year, this province has 60 million olive trees and accounts for 20 to 25% of the world's olive oil. Um, not Europe's wow. or Spain's, the world's. Um, it's actually 40 or 50% of Spain's olive oil as well. You've probably been down here, haven't you, Larry? You will have been. Yeah, the yeah, Vuelta yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite a sight, isn't it? As everyone will have seen today on TV. On the, on the subject of pitted fruit, um, I've also got a bit of a bone to pick with you, Larry. Um, you, you were in Traverse City all last week, and you didn't mention the fact that there's a cherry pit spitting championship. In tra- <laughs> it's the cherry capital tra- of the world. Yeah, yeah, that takes place in Traverse Home of the City. cherry you festival. Did not, you did not I would have definitely this. participated in many cherry pit spitting contests in my youth, so... I'd say I'm quite an expert pit spitter, actually. What, so this is measured on distance? Yeah, distance, yeah. What's a good spit? Good technique. Oh, oh, oh. What, what distance? I mean, it's pretty about? far, you know. I mean, I don't know. I, I Honestly, I can't remember, but it'd be at least like five meters or something, you know, maybe a little further. Uh, 
you know, you kind of like get a running start and then you just, you know, get a really good, uh, yeah, yeah, really good thrust. And uh, it, there's quite a technique to it. I'm almost as interested, you're getting me almost as interested in the world of cherry <laughs> spitting as I am in the Vuelta España. Um, speaking of contests, yeah. well, today was a fantastic stage and we'll, we've got a contest or at least a challenge for you coming, Larry. As every day, you are in charge of summarising today's stage. You are the only participant in the stage <laughs> summary time trial. So I'm going to ask Rob Hatch to introduce you. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. And Larry, I my finger is poised over the stopwatch. You're going to have 90 seconds to tell us what happened on a barnstorming day here at the Vuelta. Off you go, Larry. Okay, so today was stage 14 from Montoro to Sierra de la Pandera, uh, 160.3 kilometers with 3,341 meters of climbing. It was a mountaintop finish uh, up to 1,815 meters. And yeah, the stage was won by Richard Carapaz, uh, second Miguel Angel Lopez, and third Primoz Roglic. Um, that doesn't exactly explain how they arrived there because uh, there was a 10-man breakaway. Uh, it took quite a long time to escape, and there were some other small moves before, but in the end, the 10 men who escaped were Luis Leon Sanchez, uh, Richard Carapaz, Clement Champoussin, uh, Filippo Conca, Alexi Lutsenko, Bruno Armirai, Kenny Ellison, Mads Peterson, Raul Garcia Pierna, and Marco Brenner. Um, and yeah, in the end, there was, you know, kind of a thinning out on the final climb, and in the end, Richard Carapaz was the only guy who survived from that breakaway to take the stage. Um, behind, in the group behind, there was a little bit of a battle. Roglic attacked pretty early, and uh, yeah, he dropped the red jersey Evanapol, who showed a little bit of weakness. Um, lost some time, not like an enormous amount. He lost, he finished 56 seconds down on the winner, so uh, 48 seconds to Carapaz. I mean, sorry, to uh, Primoz Roglic. And yeah, now uh, Roglic is a minute 49 uh, behind Evanapol in the overall, and Enric Moss is at 2.43, so he gains a little bit of time as well. And your yeah, time, I'd Larry, say those are the important things. And your time, Larry, is up. The listeners will have noticed you measuring your words very carefully there, saying that he'd lost a little bit of time, Remco. Um, I think you and I are going to have an argument later about what this means <laughs> for the, the general classification. We've already had half an argument um, off air, off mic. But what a, what a fantastic stage it was. Um, you mentioned there the early breakaway. You had a couple of, well, you had a teammate in there, Clement Champoussin. You also had a, uh, a couple of mates, I think. Uh, Kenny Ellison is is a good pal of yours, isn't he? A training partner, sometime yes, training partner. Is. Fellow inhabitant uh, Until of the... he moved to Andorra, but yeah. Ah, I was, I was about to say, fellow inhabitant of the Côte d'Azur. Um, but we, we monitored, we watched that break form with interest this morning, obviously when, or well, it wasn't this morning, it was after lunchtime by the time they got together. Um, and when Carapaz had made it across, obviously he became the favourite, particularly after his stage win uh, a couple of days ago. But prior to that, there were a couple of uh, more tentative moves or certainly more unsuccessful moves. One of them was launched by Thomas de Ghent, the breakaway specialist. And I know he has a big following, particularly on social media and also among podcast listeners. So I just thought it'd be interesting for those listeners to hear 
what he's saying, what he has been saying about his Vuelta a España. I spoke to him yesterday morning in Ronda, and this might explain why Thomas de Gent has been struggling a little bit to infiltrate those breakaways here at the Vuelta. So here's Thomas de Gent speaking yesterday morning. It was uh, good in the start, but then uh, the first days uh, when we were in Spain, I started to get some stomach problems, and uh, that takes up a lot of strength in uh, those days and the days after to recover. And then the, the last days were just not really uh, good stages for me to uh, to try something. So I tried on the last day in Asturias, but uh, I couldn't get away. And uh, yesterday I tried also, but I was not in the right break. So yeah. Some Belgian colleagues told me that well, you tried to prepare for this race mainly with training rather than racing. I know you did Poland, but was it was it a slightly different approach um, to this welter? Um, yeah. No. Normally I do the tour and then uh, the Veld afterwards. Uh, so now I, because I didn't do the Tour de France, I had to do a training camp. So that's uh, that was different than uh, that, uh, that I'm used to. I did uh, altitude training. Um, and the, the last time I did this was like 2017 or 16 or something. So uh, my body didn't react like I hoped it would. So. Cycling's changed since then as well. Yeah, everybody goes on altitude, so maybe it's still a, a, a little different and I'm a bit better than I'm supposed to, but uh, all the rest also goes on altitude, so uh, yeah, there is no benefit in it anymore. So, Larry, that was Thomas again. well, talking, among other things, about well, the spending time at altitude, but feeling as though it's not as much of an advantage as it used to be because everyone's at altitude all the time these days, pretty much. And on that subject, actually, I had a bit of a laugh this morning with Yetza Bowl the uh, Burgos Biace rider from Avonhorn, I think the place is called, in the Netherlands. And every year before the Vuelta, I do a, a general classification based on the altitude of rider's birth, and he always comes in bottom because um, where he <laughs> lives, Avonhorn, is, is below the level of the sea, minus two metres. He, um, he confirmed that to me this morning. Well, we are certainly in the mountains at the moment, Larry. Tomorrow we're going to have the highest mountaintop finish of the Vuelta one of the highest mountaintop finishes in fact that you ever get in professional cycling 2,500 and something metres above sea level in the Sierra Nevada um, I think and again we're going to discuss this a bit later but I think there's blood in the water tonight I think Primoz Roglic has drawn that blood he can certainly smell that blood and well, I think the momentum has shifted today so we are going to hear from Primoz Roglic um, but before that we're going to hear from King Kenny your mate Kenny Ellison who was in that break but unfortunately couldn't get the stage win today and between the two of them we've also got Chris Harper who did a fantastic job as a domestique for Primoz Roglic today as he well as he set about Remco Evenepoel quick step and as I said he did draw some blood on La Pandera so first it's Kenny Ellison then Chris Harper then Primoz Roglic yeah it was nice I was not uh, really really in the plan actually I was I'm a bit uh, I'm a bit sick so I was like maybe okay I'm, I'm gonna recover to try to be more better next week but then yeah after 80k with Matt we say okay let's go and uh, he went and uh, yeah after actually it was nice because I took some pleasure and you know Matt is so generous in the effort you know you he, he gave me everything to help me and uh, yeah that's a champ maybe you think everybody is tired but then when I start when Luis Leon Sanchez and Carapaz started to attack 
I quickly I felt it was a was a bit out of reach today. Yeah, really good day. Uh, it's good to see when you coming into the race that Primoz would probably uh, progressively get better. So yeah, that's starting to show and uh, just chip away at Remco's lead day by day. Uh, Primoz felt good, so he told us to sort of take over and make it hard. Um, also with the idea to try go for the stage. Uh, so yeah, my role was just to try set a high tempo on the uh, on the final climb. Of course, it's uh, I think motivating for everyone to see see Primoz uh, getting getting stronger and stronger. But yeah, we believe from the start that he can win this win this bike race, and uh, yeah, that's that's only uh, getting more and more confirmed. Uh, nice day, but yeah, you all know what. Uh, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose a bit, but uh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, we can keep this trend. Like I said, I'm feeling uh, better. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we race now. Huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm still quite far, and uh, but yeah, uh, the race is over. also still long. Uh, but uh, yeah, the guys uh, really uh, did a great job. Uh, yes, each and every one of them uh, really uh, uh, yeah, pushed hard and uh, yeah, happy to be a part of uh, the team and uh, looking forward uh, yeah, for the next days. Today is today and uh, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, the title sponsors of the cycling podcast, of course. If you want to find out more about Super Sapiens and the system of continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com. We've been hearing from Sam Brand, who rides for Novo Nordisk. Now, Sam is a type 1 diabetic, and he has learned over the years of monitoring his glucose levels in real time that what goes up must come down and vice versa and he has mastered the art of keeping his blood glucose levels in the performance zone uh, because it's vital not just for how he rides on the bike but also for his health and what he's learned is uh, something that we can all take on board to improve the way we fuel for racing and training well yeah i mean like when when i see a sort of a drop in on on, on my blood glucose then obviously it might require some more factastic fat fast acting glucose so that might be a gel uh, depends on on how the the graph looks in terms of if i'm dropping quick i might need a gel as opposed to if i'm just riding at a sedate level uh, steady or in the brake but uh, at cruising speed shall we say uh, that might require still going to require energy but it might require like a, a bar or uh, you know a sort of um, something that's a longer lasting fuel so that's kind of making those decisions on the fly and understanding how that's going to work in the next two, three hours is quite like insightful and it's really good for me to be able to see that live. El Diario Remco. The Daily Remco. You never know what happens. It's a three-week race. Uh, yesterday... Would have been an easy stage, but it was not that easy because of the wind and the, the stress in the bunch. So uh, I just hope I recovered well. I had a good night of sleep and uh, yeah, I just hope that today the legs will be good and then that tomorrow 
I will not. Uh, I mean that the legs will still be okay after today's stage. Come Sunday night, will you be happy with the status quo, or would you wish for a, a bigger cushion? I think I will be happy if I can keep the lead like it is now. Uh, I don't really need to win a stage. Uh, I already got one, so that's already a, a done deal. But I mean, yeah, now it's important to keep the jersey. Uh, and even with like a 10, 15, 20 second time loss, I will not be stressed because that's uh, not so much on uh, finishes like this. But um, yeah, it's always better to, to keep the same advantage. Remco, you said you slept well. Any issues with your hand or your hip from the crash the other day? Nothing? No gloves, so uh, full confidence in my hands. <laughs> So we heard there, Larry, that the gloves were off um, as far as Remco Avenepoel was concerned this morning. Um, no issues from the crash. Uh, how many days ago is it now? Was it yesterday? No, two days ago. Two, two days ago. When, when he did hurt his hand, we, we talked about it then. He came in with a ripped shorts and quite a deep cut. It looked like on his right hip, if I remember correctly. But he said he'd been sleeping well. So there was no sign this morning, as you heard there. He was sounding pretty chipper, as he has been throughout this welter. There was no sign that a bad day was coming. Contrast that with the statements in the press conference this evening when, to me, he looked a little bit more irritable than he, he has been um, up until now during this world, understandably. But in the press conference this evening, he said, well, it was one of the hardest days, certainly. It took about 80 kilometers for the break to go, so that made it hard. Um, he said, we lost a small battle, not the big battle. And he said, it, it was mm. my turn to lose time today. That's just the life of a Grand Tour. He said from the, the height of his two Grand Tours, two or one and a half Grand Tours <laughs> worth of experience. So, Larry, and we said there's blood in the water. Let's sink our teeth into this now. Um, you don't believe there is any cause to panic for Remco Avenepoel and Quick Step tonight. Am I right? Yeah. I don't think yet. So, you know, I think uh, Remco is a lot more intelligent rider than probably a lot of people give him credit for. I think he knows, um, you know, his limits and his capabilities. And if he's not feeling like 110%, I think he's going to ride at his own pace that he knows he can hold and he's not going to push it. So, you know, I'll never forget um, in, I think it was, was it 20, yeah, I think it was 2019 when Remco won San Sebastian. Um, yeah. I was on our lights. Uh, we got dropped together and, uh, I remember like, I was like, oh, okay, this guy looks like he's, you know, going a good pace. So I sat on his wheel and, uh, you know, in the end we caught back to the Peloton cause they were going, you know, really hard and we both got dropped at the same time. And, uh, you know, we rode back to the Peloton and I was like, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, thanks. You know, it was like a good, good tempo. And he's like, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like clearly they couldn't keep riding that hard. So I just knew that I, I should just ride my tempo. And later, you know, he would go on to win the race. I, I, I proceeded to get dropped again. But, uh, but you know, I thought that was something that really struck me. Uh, you know, that this guy kid who was like, you know, 19 years old at the time, uh, you know, he was able to have that like sort of composure to just say like, okay, you know, um, I'm just going to let myself get dropped and uh, ride my own tempo. So, you know, looking at today, it wouldn't surprise me if he just said, OK, I'm not feeling 110 percent. I'm going to ride my own tempo. And, you know, it'd be one thing if he lost two minutes, three minutes uh, by the top, but he only lost 50 less than 50 seconds. So, um, you know, I don't think it's cause for worry uh, if it was like a few more minutes um yeah maybe maybe it'd be something different um but we'll see what happens tomorrow because tomorrow is a lot harder final climb and i think that'll give us more answers 
Larry, I want to take you back, um, not to 2018 and the Giro, the Simon Yates Giro yet, and we'll talk about that later, but I'm going to take you back to the start of the final climb, or just before the start of the final climb, in fact, just before the summit of the Viares, uh, the penultimate climb, when Robert Haysink got on the front of the peloton, Jumbo Visma took control, and well, what did you see from that moment on, particularly from Remco? I mean, what, what did you think was going on at that point did you think that he was on a a reasonable day he certainly looked to me as though well he didn't look any different from any other day he was close to to Haysink I mean he was on Haysink's shoulder more or less Primoz Roglic was quite a bit further back in the in the peloton and um, yeah he didn't really betray any sign of weakness at that point but what did you see up until up until the moment when daylight finally did open up between Remco and Primoz I mean, to be honest, I wasn't really looking that closely at Remco, uh, just because, like, for me, I wasn't expecting him to have, uh, you know, show any sign of weakness or falter just yet. Um, so I'd have to go back now and look for the things, uh, you know, in retrospect to see, like, if there was some sign of weakness. But, you know, I just saw, like, oh, it's interesting. You know, I was like, Roglic must be on a good day if, like, you guess Sink is going full like this. So... Um, you know, I, I guess at the time I didn't really think anything of Remco in particular, and I was just kind of surprised when he gets dropped. But he's also the kind of guy who looks really, really solid at all times. So, you know, it's kind of like he looks totally fine until one moment he kind of explodes or gets dropped. So it's really hard with riders like that. Actually, my teammate Oliver Nassen is someone who's really similar, who's just his position on the bike and the way he pedals, you know, he looks really good and he's never all over the place until one moment he just totally blows and then they start to show like weakness right so uh it's interesting because you know he doesn't have the typical tells of some of the other guys who maybe are all over the place or you know you know uh he's definitely not Maury von Sevenant uh his teammate um but yeah it's uh it's it's hard to tell with him so yeah maybe you'd have to look back more closely and see if there's anything you can you can really see I mentioned the 2018 Giro d'Italia and Simon Yates. Of course, most of us remember, I think all of us remember, how he lost the pink jersey on the climb that went over the Colle delle Finestre that then was gone down in cycling history because of Chris Froome's attack to to effectively steal the the Giro d'Italia and Yates collapsed completely. Um, But the day before, I have almost more vivid memories of the day before and the climb to Prato Nevoso when he didn't give away much but it was the first time in that Giro d'Italia when he had given away any time on a significant climb and he lost 43 seconds to uh, Superman Lopez that day, um, a bit less from Froome. But Remco lost 48 seconds from Primoz Roglic today, plus the bonus. And I just got those vibes today. And I'm a big believer, from the height of my zero years of experience riding Grand Tours, I'm a big believer in momentum um, in Grand Tours, particularly when it comes to general classification riders. But you might tell me, Larry, that it doesn't work like that, that perhaps we should take what Remco said at face value, i.e. it was a bad day and... You'll, you'll always get a bad day in a Grand Tour, whether you're riding high in general classification or you're in the belly of the bunch. I mean, I think the thing is with Remco is like we just don't have any trends yet with him to really know. So um, I don't know. I'm still not going to write him off just yet. You know, I, I think uh, we'll see tomorrow. Um, but even to me, even if he's strong tomorrow, that doesn't mean he's not going to crack in the third week because like, you know, if we look back, like he was absolutely flying in San Sebastian, which was, you know, a few weeks before the Vuelta. So 
that's a really long time to be on top, top, top form. And you don't ride as fast as you did in San Sebastian unless you're in top form no matter who you are. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he starts to falter sometime soon. But I, I don't know. I'm not ready to ride him off just yet. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it looks like Roglic is getting stronger. And that's, you know, what uh, it sounded like. I'm sure we'll listen to this later in the podcast. His uh, director said... Um, so, you know, if Roglic is getting stronger and maybe um, Remco's form is starting to teeter off a tiny bit, it's possible. But I really, I'm not going to write him off just yet because you really just never know. And I detected today, Larry, just around the team, and well, we, you mentioned Adi Engels, the direct sportif, who we'll hear from later. I detected a bullishness about Jumbo Visma that I haven't previously seen at this Vuelta a España. There was a spark. We heard it from Chris Harper um, earlier on, Primoz himself, Roglic didn't give too much away. Um, today is today, uh, tomorrow is tomorrow, uh, <laughs> and that was kind of that was a typical Roglicism. But there was fire. I saw some fire in his legs today, and that is the most important thing. But I do again, it, it has to do with momentum, and I just feel as though the prevailing wind blowing over this Vuelta a España switched direction today. That is my that's my sense. Okay, well, I guess we'll see you tomorrow. We will, we will. Um, Larry, let's just talk also for a moment about Enric Mass. Uh, again, what did you see there? Um, there, was a, there was a brief moment. There was um, a time window of about two minutes when it looked as though Enric Mass was going to win this Vuelta a España. When he was following Primoz Roglic, um, didn't look to be in any great difficulty. And, of course, Enric Mass is, um, well, he's ahead of Primoz Roglic still on general classification. Is he? Is he? No, he's not. He's not. He's dropped no. below him. Um, but he he started the day ahead of Primoz Roglic on general classification. So at that point, he was the clubhouse leader in effect of this, uh, or he could have been of this Vuelta Espana because at one stage it did look as though Rem- uh, Remco he, he didn't start. Did he not? He didn't start in front of Primoz. Right. No, no. You're much better. It's been a few days. Sorry. You're much better. It was the TT day. <laughs> oh no. You're a much better podcaster than me, Larry. Um, well, anyway, no, no, I'm you, not. Get, you get the picture, Larry. You get the picture. Enric Mas was looking, <laughs> was looking in good shape. He was looking well placed, and then all of a sudden we saw him spinning. He obviously um, went went right up the, the, the his cassette. Um, right up the, the the gears and and started spinning um a very well a tiny gear i think his smallest gear but there was clearly no power in the legs because everyone was riding away from him what what happened there i mean you know i think it's we're talking about minute differences between these guys so you know i mean he lost not even 30 seconds to primos in the end so you know i think it's just yeah it's you're coming now we're in you know stage 14 second week of the grand tour uh you know hard climb end of the day uh you know it's hot down there i think it's just like you know there's just these tiny minute differences and if you go a tiny bit over your limit then you can definitely pay for it so you know he was able to follow roglic for a while uh and yeah and then i think he probably just went a tiny bit over the limit and then you know semi-exploded but uh in the end it wasn't you know something catastrophic because yeah he he lost 28 seconds so um i think uh yeah you know you got to try right and so who knows it's maybe maybe roglic accelerated a tiny bit at the end or just uh or just he couldn't keep holding the pace but um luckily for him it wasn't anything too catastrophic larry you, you mentioned limits there 
and every rider's limit. Yeah. How do you personally define your limit nowadays? Is it an amalgamation, a sort of composite of watts and heart rate and maybe something else and maybe sort of softer factors, more subjective factors, just how you feel yourself? Or is there? A, do you have a number of watts and, that, and you know that that's your limit on any given climb? You know, so for me, it depends on the situation. Uh, you know, in training, I would be using my watts, my heart rate, whatever, and then I'd be training to a certain you know, power, heart rate, you know, things like that. Um, but, uh, in the race, I'd really try to go more off of feeling. I, I try not to look at the Watts. I, I try not to look at my heart rate. And a lot of times I'll just put speed and, uh, and yeah, I, I go off that. It's different if I'm in the breakaway, um, because then, you know, the whole day out, you kind of want to pace yourself. If it's a long climb, you pace yourself. But when you're with other guys, when you're in the bunch, uh, I think, if you're really looking too much at uh, at the numbers, at the heart rate, at the power, uh, in the end you can, I don't know, I think you can kind of limit yourself. So um, I know some of my best performances have happened when I've just shut everything off and I've just gone blind and gone off a of feeling because, you know, in the end, if you've done it long enough, you can really pace yourself quite well off of feeling. And I think you're, you're holding yourself back if, if you're really just limiting yourself to certain numbers so um, how, how typical, it depends you know how typical is what you're sorry? how typical is what you're describing the your particular i think approach? it's a lot more common than people think um i think a lot of the guys uh, in the peloton don't really like to psych themselves out with numbers or heart rate because you're only looking down when you're going hard um you know if you're cruising along and you're doing whatever 150 watts you're never looking at your power then right it's only when you're like wow this is hard and you look down and then you see a big number um so i think uh yeah it's pretty typical but maybe early on in a race guys will look at their power more they'll say like okay i don't want to like make too many accelerations over a certain number you know you see sprinters or other guys sag climbing so they'll start at the at the front of the bunch when they hit the bottom of the climb and you know if it's not a critical moment of the race they'll sort of sag all the way to the back so you can avoid all the little micro accelerations in the middle of the peloton if, if you do that uh, and you ride to your numbers but then at the end of the day you get to the final climb you you need to be there you need to be with the other guys you need to follow the wheel in front of you and it doesn't really serve a whole lot to pace yourself. Uh, the only time that it might be slightly different is if you're on a really steep climb where perhaps like drafting doesn't really come into play, then you can maybe go your own pace and ride to your watts. But, uh, but yeah, I think a lot of times guys limit themselves um, if they are looking at the numbers. And I know most guys try to avoid looking at that uh, because it can psych, psych you out. When it came to dosing his effort, Richard Carapaz certainly, well, he did a masterful job today. Um, did you, like me, as soon as you saw that he was in that break, fear or think there was only one outcome, really, that it was an inevitability that he would take his second stage win? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was pretty confident he was going to win when I saw the composition of the breakaway. But again, you know, it's, it's hard to say because... What it, the other day when he won uh, the first time, when I saw Jay Vine was in that breakaway, I also thought he was going to win uh, based on his prior two performances. So it's kind of hard to say when you're in a group, especially when you're really favored. Um, I think everyone looks at you. A lot of guys don't want to work with you. Maybe you have to do a little more work than the others, and that can tie you out for the finish. So, um, I mean, I was 
I thought he probably had a better chance to win than any of the others, but I didn't think it was exactly a foregone conclusion. So, uh, Larry, he was also he was in the break with one of your teammates, uh, Clément uh, Champoussin. At one stage, it was those two and Luis Leon Sanchez um, together at the head of the race, and it suddenly came to me that there was that those two, Carapaz and Champoussin, have one thing in common: they have the same agent, uh, Mr. Cuadro, the Italian. <laughs> um, but tell us about Clément Champoussin because I think I mentioned him in one of your previous appearances on the podcast. He was a guy who, well, he is a guy who has been sort of anointed as as one of the great hopes of French cycling. Um, won a stage in the Vuelta. One, one, what everyone in cycling now refers to was the Superman stage in the Vuelta last year not because Superman Lopez starred uh, quite the opposite it was the day when he got off his bike and and well, walked out of his Movistar ah. career but uh, Champoussin won that stage but yeah tell me about Clément Champoussin well yeah actually uh, he's he's a pretty interesting uh, kid I'll call him a kid because yeah he's he's young but he also um, to me he just seems kind of like a kid still you know he lives with his parents he, he's Niçois uh, so he's one of he might be the only Niçois, like originally Niçois professional cyclist. There's plenty of professional cyclists who live down, you know, south of France, Côte d'Azur, but uh, he comes from there, his family comes from there, and uh, yeah, he's really the hometown boy, so uh, anytime I go training, everyone always asks me about Clément Champoussin, uh, but uh, he's really a, a giant sure, talent. Surely, so, um, surely you're the big kid on campus down there on the Côte d'Azur. Well, you know, uh, I don't have that real hometown advantage there. Uh, I think Traverse City, Michigan, is <laughs> is more more where that is for me. But uh, but yeah, uh, it's o- it's okay down there. But but yeah, so um, you know, he's really a huge talent. He came from mountain biking, and uh, yeah, he switched to the road a little bit later. I think he he I don't know if he was French national champion in the juniors or something in the mountain bike, um, something like I think that. He was. You know? I think he was. I think he was. Okay, yeah, and so he's really talented on the mountain bike. He actually jumped in the French National Championships uh, mountain bike for the pros last year, and I think he was sixth or seventh starting last row. So, yeah, pretty impressive guy. And uh, he, I mean, you know when you guys use the term whimsical flaneur, I think for like Warren Barguil? He is about equivalent. Um, So he just kind of like does what he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't really like, speaking of power meters, he doesn't really like to use a power meter. He didn't ever use one before he turned a pro. And I think, like, he never calibrated his first year pro half the time the battery was dead. I don't <laughs> think he really knows what training peaks is. Um, yeah, so uh, he, he's, he's, it's cool because, you know, he just kind of does it the old school way. He rides on feeling. He goes, he rides with his buddies. He sprints for a few town signs, and somehow he rocks up to these races this and sounds, uh, can win. Sounds, so. sounds very Boggy-esque. Um, but of course, yeah, yeah. Right, he has a, an alternative nickname, Warren Barguil, the dandelion picker, ramasseur de pissenlit. So maybe we'll go with that, and uh, Clément Champoussin will henceforth be the whimsical flaneur. Exactly, exactly. It's probably good because, yeah, he, he really, uh, yeah, I mean, half, you know, he's the kind of guy, like, we get on the bus and say we're supposed to leave at uh, 10 a.m. on the dot, and it's 10.10 and he's still not there, and then someone calls him, and then they say, hey, like, we call him Shampoo. Shampoo, where are you? And he goes, well, I'm in my room. <laughs> and then, it, well, you know, we're leaving. He goes, why? And, and well, <laughs> well, we were supposed to leave at 10 oh yeah okay i didn't realize and then he doesn't run out to the bus you know he just walks casually there so 
So it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, he, he is a really big talent, and, uh, and he's a good kid, uh, even if he sometimes is a little bit in the clouds. But, uh, mm. but yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we still see him win a stage at the end of this, in this Welter. We'll be featuring another rider or ex-rider who displays similar traits in part three, but that's still to come. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, where we all strut around in ruffled shirts, click our castanets and shake our hips like Ricky Martin taking on the Carrefour de l'Arbre, all in the name of guiltily reviving the official songs of the Vuelta a España and the races to which they were dedicated. Today, Larry, we're going back to the late summer of 2008, a time when the US and indeed global economy was melting down and Spanish cycling fans were in a sizzle at the prospect of Alberto Contador taking on his home Grand Tour for the first time. The official song in 2008 was Pretendo Hablarte, I Want to Talk to You, by the Madrid-born songstress Beatriz Luengo, about whom my research this this morning yielded absolutely nothing especially interesting. Um, I even wasted 20 minutes listening to a 2008 radio interview in which she mainly talked about the difficulty of ordering croissants in Paris. Pretendo hablarte y no decirte que ya no sé vivir si ya no estás aquí aquí tan sola estoy y en medio de la nada medio de la nada y entre tanta gente estoy pensando en ti las horas pasan tú ya no estás yo So yes, not much to say about that. Instead, uh, I should take the opportunity to tell you that yesterday we did the 2006 World Tour and its official song. I should have mentioned that En Que Estrella Estará, in which star it will be, was one of a couple of songs by the group in question, Nena da Conte, which caused significant controversy in Spain for their apparently anti-abortionist subtext. Thank you to one of our listeners, Julio Masip, for pointing this out. But back to 2008 and it's Gran Salida in Granada, where I'm lucky to be staying tonight. First stage was a TTT, the winner's liquid gas, and the first leader of the, Vuel- of the Vuelta, wait for it, friend of the podcast, Pippo Pozzato. Alejandro Valverde took the gold jersey off the peacock of San Drigo the following day, but Valverde's lead was also short-lived, and indeed it wasn't until stage 13 and the Angliru that the GC battle started to settle. Contador won there and again the next day at the Fuentes del Infierno, literally the fountains of hell. Moments later, the Lehman Brothers were going bankrupt and causing the biggest fall in the Dow Jones since 9-11, 9-11-2001 that is. Contador, literal translation accountant or bookkeeper, how apt, would suffer no collapse and finally won the Vuelta by 46 seconds from Levi Leipheimer. At 25, he was the youngest rider to assemble a full set of all three Grand Tours and the third rider to complete that Grand Slam. After who, Larry? Who else had done the Grand Tour Grand Slam before um, Contador? Any before Contador? I mean, I don't know, was it Eddie Merckx? <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Merckx was one. The second one is a little bit more left field. Is it like Italian or something? Italian. Italian um, no, it was Felice Gimondi. Oh, that was going to be my next guess, actually. Actually. Oh, of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> uh, Larry, in this part, we are going to talk about heroes a little bit. We'll find out why in just a second. But did you have any cycling heroes growing up? 
I mean, I would say like growing up, um, I, I mean, I was definitely a huge fan of Lance Armstrong. You know, I don't know if I would consider him necessarily a hero, but, uh, but yeah, the, I was... The, con- the controversial Lance Armstrong to give him his official name on the podcast. Ah, uh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. He who must not be named in cycling. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, you're an American kid and uh, yeah, he was a huge star. And, you know, I mean, I think if it wasn't for him, a lot of us uh, of my generation wouldn't have ever gotten into cycling. So... He definitely did bring a lot uh, to the popularity of our sport and everything. So, yeah, growing up, definitely I loved to follow Lance. And then once I started to race more, um, you know, again, I don't can know I, if I can, can I ask a you, hero. So, yeah, yeah. Before, before we go on, Larry, can I ask you when, when did sort of the scales fall from your eyes or when did, um, as far as Armstrong is concerned, when, did the, when was the wall pulled from your eyes? Um, was it? Did you sort of start to have doubts and maybe change your view of him as early as I don't know, two thousand and five, when you know after his retirement, Le Keep oh, no. um, published pretty Shit. compelling evidence they'd taken EPL. Or was it as late as well, more or less, the time when you were um, turning professional in two thousand and twelve, and he did his famous interview with Oprah Winfrey? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was somewhere in between those two times. You know, I mean, I was a kid in two thousand and five, so like. That's not something, I mean, I also didn't know anything about cycling, so, you know, and I'm not French, so I, I can't say I'm the most skeptical, I'm, a lot of people probably think I'm naive, but like, um, so yeah, definitely when I was 15 years old, that's not something that ever would have crossed my mind, or, you know, I didn't know that was a thing, um, so, so yeah, I don't know, maybe it was like, somewhere around 2011, 2012, or something, that maybe I, that would have been something that I realized, you know, so, um so yeah i don't know um it wasn't then, until oprah winfrey but but yeah <laughs> <laughs> oprah winfrey shattering myths destroying yeah. dis- destroying legends um and then larry well you you were about to tell us i think about well, a hero you had or heroes that you had when you came into the pro peloton and guys you were maybe well looking forward to meeting riding alongside Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I just uh, I just told this to you off the air. But, you know, um, for me, when I when I started really racing and getting getting into racing um, for me, like probably my the rider I was the biggest fan of um, was Heinrich Hausler. So maybe not exactly my hero, but, uh, you know, he was probably my favorite rider, Uh, you know. Those uh, Cervelo documentaries beyond the Peloton that they released that year, they were just incredible. And I, I was in love with them. And, and they did one on Heinrich Hausler when he was second in San Remo that year. I think it was 2009. Um, and, you know, just barely lost to Cav. I just thought, you know, that was just so cool. And uh, when he won that stage, um, I can't remember where it was into, but in the 2009 Colmar. Tour de France solo. In, yeah, yeah, exactly. In, yeah. in the Vosges, yeah. And... Um, for me, that was just incredible. And, and, you know, like the way he was crying when he crossed the finish line, you know, I think I was almost in tears watching it. So like, and I was just like, this guy's incredible. And, uh, yeah, then I got the chance to be teammates with him on IM. And it's kind of funny because the first time I met him, I was like, Oh, actually this guy's kind of an asshole. <laughs> Never meet um, heroes. What was yeah, his exactly. I don't know. I don't know. He was just kind of a dick the first time I met him, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I don't exactly remember why or how, but I was like, Oh, this is a lot less uh, cool than I expected it to be. But but actually, over the course of the year, we uh, was, we got to know each other better and race together more. And, and I think kind of once I earned his respect, uh, we actually became friends. And, and I really enjoyed being teammates with him. So 
this is this is a bit, a bit of a theme of these podcasts or your accounts of your pro career in these podcasts um yeah sort of school school of hard knocks that is the pro exactly. that we talked yeah uh, last week about bmc and having to earn the trust earn the respect of manuel quinciato and marcus burghardt wasn't it and yeah and you experienced the same the same again uh, um, I am. Um, are, are you as intimidating, Larry, um, for young no, I, you I'm <laughs> Tough for the I young I would kids? be surprised if I was. I, I, I would be, I mean, I, I mean, cool, you know. I, I just don't think I'm that intimidating. So uh, so who knows? <laughs> but but potentially to some people, not not that I know of. But, but maybe I should work on my uh, intimidation uh, status, you know. Yeah, I would agree that you're not that intimidating, Larry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, we, this is a subject we have talked about on the podcast before. Heroes, I so famously, famously, uh, you know, among uh, among pod- podcast listeners anyway, um, idolised Pavel Tonkov, which is a bit of a strange a left-field choice for a hero. Um, another one, though, and this brings us to our Encuentro del Día, was Oscar Freire. Now, when we did the Ritmo de la Vuelta a few minutes ago, I mentioned the 2008 Vuelta a España, Oscar Freire took one of his seven Vuelta a España stages there in 2008. Um, of course, prior to that, he had won four Tour de France stages. He also won the green jersey in 2008. He won Ghent Wevelgem. He won three San Remos in his career. And most famously, he won three rainbow jerseys, three world championships. Um, he's now 46 and he has well he was always a bit of a cult figure I don't know if, if this applies to you um, Larry if you shared this but Oscar Freire was this sort of mythical figure who never well he didn't race very much but often because he was injured he was very fragile famously fragile and when he did race he would be invisible most of the time in the peloton and then he would pop up and win these massive races and notably the world championship this air of casual insouciance as the French would say as they would say down there on the Riviera um <laughs> Larry and he did everything with the same sort of air he had this reputation for being very forgetful for being um, a little bit loose in the same way that you described um, Clément Champoussin for forgetting things I visited Oscar Freire at his house in northern Spain in Torre la Vega in about 2007 I think I've told the story on the podcast before how he proudly and was showing off to me this new automated lawnmower that he bought, this this robot, um, which then proceeded a few seconds later to nosedive off the edge of his lawn and shatter into about 100 pieces. And he also told me a story that day, I remember, about he'd somehow ended up in a shopping trolley on one of those conveyor belts um, that sort of take you up a slope into a supermarket. Somehow, either going up or down, um, he'd ended up in the shopping trolley. I think he was going down, and um, this was sort of this was the kind of thing that happened every day in the life of Oscar Ferreira. Um, but he carried wow. it off. He, he sort of could style off, style out anything, and um, yeah, always maintained this this sort of enviable air of being very at peace with himself. Anyway, after that very long introduction, um, they say don't meet your heroes, but I have met Oscar Freire before, wasn't disappointed, and I met him <laughs> again today. He's at the Vuelta, working for one of the sponsors as an ambassador for the Fertiberia um, company. I think they make fertilizer, something probably not very sexy, but that's what he's doing at the Vuelta, and I spoke to him this morning at the start in Montoro. So here is Oscar Freire, and he is today's Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. 
am very lucky uh, in, in my life, so I enjoy a lot and I, I when I stop cycling, I, I decide to, to be with my family and uh, so I have a little investments, but uh, I don't do a, a really work, so uh, normally my my normal life is uh, is to be with the the family to go to the school with the children so it's uh, a really nice life so <laughs> i am happy for for that and you have one son is it mateo who is a cyclist or he's a 16 years old and he's already racing yeah it's uh, it's marcos i have three uh, marcos uh, mateo and manuel the oldest is uh, 16 years old and is uh, a little cyclist so <laughs> when, when you are 16 so now every everybody say oh now in uh, two years can be a professional but everybody is not like uh, Ayuso or, or uh, Evenepoel so I think it's a, a normal cyclist in this moment does he want to become a cyclist I don't know uh, he likes a lot also his father he understands a little bit of cycling so I hope that become a good uh, rider but I don't know because now it's too early for him so the, the good thing is uh, that uh, in this moment that he's doing a sport for the rest I don't know maybe in the future it will be cyclist but not no now now it's a child <laughs> how much are you riding yourself how much cycling do you do not a lot uh, uh, for example the last two months uh, maybe once uh, per week but normally I I want to to do, I want to try every every week uh, more more uh, training, but uh, just to be fit, not uh, for uh, <laughs> to be strong or something like like before. So I like uh, cycling. I I try to do sometimes uh, some small races uh, uh, as a as a cyclotourist, but not uh, not uh, cyclist anymore. So Oscar, um, you say you don't ride much. How do you stay so fit looking? You're very slim, still muy delgado. I am growing up <laughs> in this moment. So now I I did a lot before. So I remember two years ago I I was fit because I was I was doing a lot of training, not on the bike always, uh, but uh, I was doing uh, also in winter time uh, tennis. Uh, so. I don't, I don't want to relax a lot because then it's too difficult to be in a book, healthy. So uh, I think it's, uh, it's better to don't take a lot of weight that uh, then to do the, 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 the opposite. When you were a rider, when you were a cyclist, and there were lots of legends about you, leyendas, no? For example, that even then you didn't train that much. True or false? I, I I did a lot of uh, good training, not so much, but uh, good quality. I think the cycling is changing a little bit. So the the riders they do the same like I was doing before. I think, in my opinion, because it's better the, to do a very good quality training than to lose uh, hours and hours in, on the bike. I remember. So you you used to be famous for getting ready for the world championships. 
in a sh and your coaches used to say you could get fit very very quickly in a month six weeks yeah I think it's uh, if uh, it's really important to do races before the, the important race so uh, to be fit and to be in a, in a good uh, shape it's important to to make a, a good period of races so I remember my my preparing for the for for the world championships was the a little bit in the vuelta and then a good quality training just before the world championships another thing you were famous for forgetting things well i saw you walk over there a minute ago and you forgot your mobile phone you left it here do you still forget lots of things uh, yeah still still in this vuelta i am okay till this moment but for example uh, my last thing was uh, one month ago I went to the hotel and I forgot the luggage so I <laughs> I arrived at home and then uh, I called the, the agency to, to take my luggage it was 300 kilometers from my home so you left everything you left everything in the hotel yeah the luggage yeah <laughs> so but I, I am really relaxed normally so it's not a big problem for me <laughs> Last couple of things, another couple of legends, um, Oscar. I heard that you were crazy about yogurt. Eras enfermo de yogurt. That you had even a spoon in your car, yes. in el coche, no? Yes, when I was uh, 16 and, and then uh, also professional, I was always uh, with yogurts and I was eating yogurts also in the car. So also when I was with my girlfriend or uh, my wife, <laughs> I was uh, eating a lot of yogurts because I like and, uh, and still I like. So for me, it's uh, the best dessert for a, for a rider, for sure. Last, last legend, you were Spanish scale electric champion or were you second place? And, and how old were you? I never been, I never been a, a, a national champion. So always world champion in cycling, but in uh, Escalestri, electric cars, I was in a second position in the nationals, so I hope to be in the future uh, a champion, a national champion in, in something. I don't know in what. But Yo, in maybe eating yogurt. Maybe <laughs> I have to prepare. It. And Oscar, very last thing: who's going to win this Vuelta a España, in your opinion? Before the Vuelta, I say the Evener Pool, and I still is uh, the leader. So, in my opinion, is in a in a good condition, and I think is the. The, the first chance to win the Vuelta for a very young rider. So, Larry, that was Oscar Freire. He retains that ambition of becoming Spanish champion in something. Might not be scale electric, might not be yogurt eating, but could it be cherry stone spitting? What, what was the official name of the what was the, what was the competition in Traverse City? It's the Cherry Pit Spitting Contest. Cherry yeah. Pit Spitting, maybe Torrelavin, maybe well, maybe there's a Spanish national championship. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Larry, what do you make? Of, what do you make of Oscar Ferreira this morning? Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I appreciated the you asked him about the yogurt, and he just said because I like uh, and. <laughs> That that was funny. But anyway, one thing I found interesting was the one thing I always heard about Oscar Farah was that he would spend the entire... I mean, I don't know. This could also be just a myth. But, like, he wouldn't touch his bike the entire winter. And uh, then apparently he'd show up to training camp. And, you know, he'd get killed for the first few days, just get his ass totally kicked. And then he'd sort of be okay the middle of training camp. 
and by the end of training camp, he'd be dropping everyone. Um, and and so yeah, and apparently he just the whole winter never touched his bike. The first time he touched it would be the first day of training camp. And I thought that was, you know, I just was like, oh, that's crazy. But then listening to what he said there was that, you know, you asked him, you said something about not training. And he said, actually, like that, I like to do other things. You know, I like to play tennis in winter. And 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 I kind of thought that was interesting because maybe he was sort of an early proponent of cross training and, you know, used all these other ways to stay fit. So, yeah, maybe he chubbed to training camp, not having ridden his bike, but he was actually like focused. And, and it was kind of funny. He also referenced the weight like we talked about yesterday. Yeah. Obviously, that's a big thing that uh, unfortunately has uh, intertwined many different places in cycling. But I mean, he is in absolutely fantastic shape. I mean, he almost looks younger now than he did when he was riding. Um, that said, for a guy who used to win sprint finishes against the fastest riders in the world, he's quite an unimposing character. Well, he has an unimposing physique. He's about five foot nine, and he has quite slim calves. And you, to look at him, you would probably think. Um, that he was a climber but he's also one of those guys Larry that you look at him and you look at his demeanour and you watch him move around and you can almost see him sort of conserving energy if that makes sense you can th- there's nothing mm-hmm. um, that he does and nothing that seems to have any influence on him that would would appear to sap any of his sort of life force and you can imagine that um, you know this was certainly a huge advantage when he was a professional cyclist there are other guys I've encountered over the years um, who who have a similar air about them but then on the other hand there are guys who seem very uptight and spend their whole time worrying and fretting and being paranoid and maybe borderline neurotic and, and they're also very good riders as well so um, I suppose there's no universal rule but that was Oscar <laughs> yeah. Ferreira um, a, a pleasure and a privilege um, to meet him this morning Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, who will be fueling my ride again tomorrow. I've got another 100 plus kilometre ride planned tomorrow, and I'm just sorting through what I've got left in stock here. I'm going to take the beta fuel in my bidons, mix that up into the drink, and that pretty much keeps me going to be honest Uh, but I will also take a couple of energy bakes and uh, a couple of energy gels the go energy gels and uh, well I'll have something to offer to Simon if he starts to feel a little bit tired in the second half of our ride Um, if you want to get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com go to scienceinsport.com and use the discount code SISCP25 La etapa de mañana la cena de ayer Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Well, last night I promised on the podcast I would eat some flamenquin. Um, this was, oh, how do I describe it? It was kind of, it's it's a bit like a, a schnitzel, but it's also got jamón imberico in it, and it's also in the shape of a kind of a baton. Um, rather than a flat slab it was pretty good but I was quite surprised that in, Cor- uh, in Cordoba it was served as an, as an entrante as a starter which I thought was slightly unusual also had a glass of, of nice Montilla which we mentioned in the podcast yesterday's sherry like um, wine which is sometimes drunk as an aperitif so that's what I did last night 
Larry, well, I should also mention, it's, it's got nothing to do with food, but um, as stated, as explained last year, um, or as recommended last year, um, Cordoba is a destination that I, I would advise anyone to go to if they get the opportunity. It's famous for its, its mosque slash cathedral. It used to be a mosque built in the 8th century, the Mesquita, and, well was or became a cathedral after the Reconquista and it is an extraordinary building in an extraordinary city so it was very enjoyable spending some time there we'll be spending time in another city tonight Granada with a famous Moorish heritage a Muslim heritage so looking forward to that as well but Larry let's get back to the cycling tell us what we've got coming tomorrow yeah so uh tomorrow i believe will be the hardest stage or the hardest at least finishing climb of the race um it's stage 15 from martos to sierra nevada 152.6 kilometers uh 3983 meters of climbing the finish is at 2432 meters after a 22 kilometer climb uh it has a super steep start and yeah, it's going to be pretty hot at the bottom, maybe about 30 degrees. So that's going to make for a really hard day. Uh, yeah, I guess for me, uh, I can really envision after his performance today, I would probably predict a Miguel Angel Lopez victory. Yeah, I think you. I think you're on the money yeah, there. Yeah, right? I just think Astana needs it. He won, the, he it, won yeah. the last time. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. But the sad thing is that they were originally going to finish. I don't know if you know this, but they were going to finish at like 2,900 <laughs> meters. And I don't know what happened yes. if they didn't get approval or what, so they f- stop at like t- uh, this kind of observatory yeah. or whatever. Uh, what happened, I believe, is that the race has only ever finished at the current altitude because right. um, the welter, well, the welter going to Sierra Nevada, it predates the creation of the or the sort of ratification of the national park up there in Sierra Nevada, and there was a rule whereby any event that had taken place before um, this national park status was granted could continue to go to the Sierra Nevada and could continue to go. To to those same locations and that was the case with the weather but they can't really there's no real wriggle room to do anything different from what they've done before and I think there were other environmental concerns raised as well um, pertaining particularly to that spot 2,800 metres above sea level we'll talk a, a, a bit more about that maybe in just a second with someone who should know and I think he does know a little bit more <laughs> about Sierra Nevada um, but let's first go to a couple of other individuals well, who'll be in the thick of the action tomorrow um, Adi Engels, the Jumbo Visma director sportive, I asked him this morning, well, I asked him about Primoz Roglic and how he was looking to Adi. And I also asked him about the Sierra Nevada where Jumbo Visma have trained um, in the past. And then I spoke to Ben O'Connor, your teammate Larry for AG2R, who has also spent time, a lot of time at altitude on the Sierra Nevada. We talked, among other things, about wildlife. Um, Larry, I think you've been up there with him, haven't you? I was, yeah. I was up there with him before the Tour de France this year. So we actually, yeah, us and Jumbo were the only two teams staying at the centre at that time. So kind of funny. Well, well, let's hear from Adi Engels. And well, the centre you mentioned, it's the high performance centre um, up on the Sierra Nevada. So it's Adi Engels and then Ben O'Connor. Yeah, we know the roads, but I think every every pro cyclist more or less knows the roads. So um, it's 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 
I think it's not too too tactical, too uh, too, too specific in, in, in that way. Tomorrow is such a long, hard climb. Uh, in the end, it's, it it comes down to the legs uh, and, and and also what you had to spend uh, on, until now. It will it will add up in some way. And uh, it, same for today, but, but of course tomorrow the the finish climb will be will be a lot harder, a lot longer, high altitude. So it's. Uh, it's, 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 it's going to be something different, but it's, 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 the legs will decide. And how do you see Primoz at the moment? What's he, what do you think his frame of mind is? How does he look to you generally? He has a great fighting spirit. Uh, he feels he's improving. Uh, he also sees the, the guys improving next to him in the team. So uh, oh, he's really looking forward to, uh, to this weekend. And uh, try to uh, try to have different standings, or at least be, be closer uh, on Sunday evening. Man, Sierra Nevada tomorrow. You were up there before the welter, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just talk to us a bit about the experience of living in that. It's the big sort of sports centre up there, is it? Um, is that where you were? Yeah, I was staying in the car centre. It was. It's okay. It's. It has everything that you need, but uh, I wouldn't say it's like really beautiful it, it, it was nice up there though because we had some great heat training great, great heat adaptation before Dauphiné and the climbs really are conducive both to riding easy actually funnily enough because on the highway it's not so hard or really hard like it is at the bottom of the stage for La Volta in Hazayanas um, so then you've got quite varied terrain plus at the bottom it's flat more or less so there's quite a lot of sections that you can do tantra work so that's why it's so popular what did you do in your spare time up there did you get chances to absorb the surroundings go for walks i don't know um discover the wildlife yeah i mean there's a ton of ibex up there i mean it's full 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 of ibex so that was quite beautiful walking around i mean it was really not not very difficult to find them I mean, walk up onto the ridges there wasn't a lot of snow left when we were there I'm sure when you're there in march you can go skiing if you like uh, but yeah, it is quite a barren, like windswept terrain up there. So, barring the the ibex, there's not a ton else. But the views are stunning, and the sunsets were very special to watch every night. And, uh, just lastly, will it help you tomorrow? Uh, maybe. I think it would just. I think knowing the the first part of the climb on Hazayanas to know when it's going to stop is going to help you <laughs> because. It feels pretty relentless when you're on it, and uh, yeah, if you know where it's going to finish, it's going to help you a lot. Ben O'Connor, they're talking about ibexes, and um, we've been joined now by I don't know whether he's the ibex of Almeria. Um, he's certainly a, a fan favourite here on the cycling podcast. Again. This is not an official feature. I talked about the national parks being ratified. This feature has not been ratified officially yet. But um, gazing wistfully with Fran Reyes makes its return today. And here is Fran. Um, what have you got for us today? Hello, everyone. Nice to be here again. You know, today I have been gazing wistfully uh, because I was undergoing a mild hangover. You know, so when when I when I arrived to the top of the Sierra de la Pandera, I only felt like I needed to sit 
and stare at the blank, you know, to reflect on my eyes what there was on my brain. And so I sat down there on the Sierra de la Pandera on some rocks looking at the landscape here in Jaén because Jaén, uh, it is perceived as a pretty flat and boring land, but it's actually... Anything but flat. Exactly. Flat. It's anything but flat, anything but boring. There is quite different landscapes here, especially if we go to the other corner of the province, you will find there some of the greenest mountain environments in Spain. Seriously, Cazorla, Sierra de Cazorla, I think we have been there with the we Vuelta. Have, we have, Fran. Yeah. Um, and of course this evening, what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'll be staying in Granada this evening. Um, that's a place that you have called home for quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah, nine years already, man. When I think of that, I, I am aging. I am aging so we much. We discussed this as well, your aging, your accelerated yeah. aging process. Um, <laughs> Fran, uh, you also know, you know everything around here. Um, you know the Sierra Nevada. You've yeah. climbed those climbs, as has Larry. We'll ask him about them in a minute. Um, but tell us, tell us about them. I mean, you know, Larry, he has climbed these climbs, but he climbed them faster than me. <laughs> so he had less time to repair on the details, you know, to collect details. I, for, I for one, I don't know, maybe the li- some listeners, some hardcore cycling podcast fans, remember this Kilometer Zero I did, uh, I think it was 2018 or 2017 on Sierra Nevada. We, we were doing exactly this stage with a climb to El Purche. Uh, then a f- uh, uh, fast descent to Wejar Sierra and the climb up to Azay- from Azayanas to all the way to the Olla de la Mora. I did all those climbs while recording myself. It was a pretty interesting experience and uh, also a great test for my shape. I think if I, tomorrow I was to do the same climbs, I would I would be unable. <laughs> I, would, I mean, well, I I. I I could do it, but I would have to walk for a while, you know. And uh, yeah, they, these are these are very demanding climbs, you know. El Purche, in particular, it's quite steady, uh, whereas uh, Azayanas, it's steady but with double-digit gradients. So it uh, asks for a lot of concentration, especially from the riders. You have to be very focused if you want to remain at a good pace and if you want to not give up. Because it's easy to give up on those on those kind of climbs. Larry uh, Alejandro Valverde pretty much lost the 2006 Vuelta on El Porche um, to Alexander Vinokurov. Could Remco Evenepoel, Remco Evenepoel, sorry, I've been getting that wrong throughout tonight's podcast again. Um, could could or well, let's rephrase the question: Is tomorrow the ideal? follow-up the ideal chaser for Primoz Roglic after today yeah I, I believe it is I mean you know if if there is potentially a little bit of um, faltering on the part of Remco I think uh, tomorrow is a day you don't want to have an ounce of weakness uh, just because it's just so hard so already it's funny because I'm looking at the profile right now and uh, you know the climb before uh, the climb to Sierra Nevada is Monachil and that already is a super hard climb. But if you look at the profile, it actually looks quite small and easy uh, relative to the final climb. So to have that as sort of like the entree, the appetizer, uh, before Sierra Nevada, it's just going to make it really brutal. So, I mean, if someone already starts to put pressure there, uh, we could really see enormous time gaps tomorrow. So it's definitely going to be an exciting final to watch. 
Well, chaps, I'm certainly excited. As I said, I do. I stand by what I said at the start of the podcast. There is blood in the water tonight, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, blood coming maybe from the red jersey, maybe coming from uh, Rilke Vaynerpool's red jersey. Um, that just about concludes the entertainment for this evening. Tomorrow, I'll be joined by Brian Nygaard. That's if he doesn't listen to tonight's podcast. Hear that Larry Warbass is in La Mora <laughs> and getting his car in Pietra Santa. Make a beeline for for the Lange Hills and enjoy knees up with you tonight Larry I'm hoping Brian will will still join me tomorrow but I'm going to thank Fran for his wistful gazing more of that we hope tomorrow oh Fran what shall I eat in Granada tonight very quickly oh well you should go to the city centre and find some gazpacho oh okay gazpacho mm. I can eat that that's fine um, and I'm going to thank you Larry thank and you. we will be we'll be hearing from you again next week you've got a long I think we've got a long stint for you next week not sure exactly which days yet but we're going to we're going to define that in, in the next few hours aren't we Larry yeah sounds great looking forward to it well enjoy your evening Larry enjoy Thanks, the wine in particular think of us and, <laughs> well, and enjoy tomorrow's stage will do so good night from me good night from Fran good night and good night from Larry good night guys The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.